listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for episode 297. Getting closer at 300, Mark. I know, I know. Guess what? What? We've had a couple of companies reach out to us wanting to help us celebrate our 300th recording, so we'll see where that goes. We'll keep our audiences updated. Guess what else? Uh, What? I messed up really bad. Uh-oh. <laughs> a big shout to Rudolph Hubber. He reached out to me saying, basically, I still love the podcast despite the incessant plugs by Mark. Well, first thing, Rudolph, somebody has to pay for this stuff, so I'm sorry you have to put up with the plugs. By the way, Mark, I learned a ton about oil and gas from you, but I think in this week's podcast, you garbled up Adnock and Saudi Aramco. Adnock IPO does not concern Saudi Aramco. They are competitors in different countries. Besides, I would not expect too much transparency, but it's a different topic from the IPO. And he's absolutely right. So what I was doing when I was getting prepped for last week's episode yeah. is I was trying to compare the Saudi Aramco IPO and what Adnock was talking about doing, and I got it mixed up in my head. And so I kept using Saudi Aramco instead of the word Adnock just because I was doing research beforehand. So, Rudolph, you're 100% right. I got the two mixed up. My apologies, audience. So the last episode that we did, episode 296, when you hear me talking about Saudi Aramco's IPO, that's already happened. I should have been specifically talking about the Adnock IPO, which has not happened. And hopefully, Rudolph, there is some transparency, but we'll figure it out. But really appreciate it. And audience, big shout out to Rudolph for doing this. And all of y'all, if I make a mistake and you catch it, please, please, please let us know because I want to make sure that we get the truth and the facts out there to our audiences. So once again, Rudolph, thank you so much for writing in and let me know. That I'm, I'm actually surprised that. I didn't catch that. Well, you know, we're so busy with everything else, but that's why we depend on our listeners to keep us on the straight path. Yeah. And staying on the theme of straight paths, our industry mixer, March 30th, there's still tickets for sale. looks like this one's going to sell out. So it's going to be the last Thursday of the March, March 30th. There'll be a link in the show notes. It's a very few dollars to get in. I think it's 20 bucks. And at the end of the day, the money goes to Red M to help fight human sex trafficking. So you literally be helping save a little boy, a little girl's life. Come join us. And if you join us, come find me, come say hi. We love to meet our listeners. This is one of the ways that we get to meet our local audience here in Houston. And at some point, we're going to open things back up like we had before the pandemic in, in other cities around the U.S. and around the world. But for now, it's just here. In yeah, I had a lot of questions about it at Sarah Week. So Good. We need more people to come in and help support this cause. And it's also, it's our community, right? Yeah. It's our Houston community. So please come out and support not only Red M, but come meet your peers and your fellow listeners to the podcast. Have a drink on us and a little bit of fun. Yeah. You want to leave the review? Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, there it is. Okay. Oh, Sorry. Actually, before we get to review, yeah, I was going to say <laughs> there's a big, there's a really big thing you need to cover here. Super, super big shout out to Molly Detterman. She heard me talk, Paige and I talk about driving back to Louisiana on I 10, having to cross that bridge at Lake Charles. And the fact that, quite honestly, I don't like to drive over. So I go around. I spend another 20 minutes instead of going over that bridge. And so Molly took the time to do the research. According to Wikipedia, the bridge has been rated structurally deficient by the Department of Transportation, but was declared safe by the Louisiana Department of Transportation and Development, DOTD. There are plans to replace the bridge and improve the Westgate 
exit. Westlake. Westlake exit. So the federal government says it's deficient. The Louisiana government said, nah, it's just fine. And then it's funny. She made a comment. Molly did that. My husband's an engineer. We have to pass over that bridge occasionally. He looked at the bridge rating and saw that it was horrible. So we just hold our breath and say a little prayer every time we go over <laughs> See, it. See, <laughs> that's what I do. I just go, if it's my time, it's my time. So Molly, I really appreciate you taking the time to do the research and sending this in. And it's not going to change my mind. I'm still going around that bridge until they fix it or, oh, or, or <laughs> put a new one up. Now, time to get Okay, to now reviews. I can do it. Okay, okay. So it's a five-star review. Great show. I've been working in the oil and gas pipelines for 20 years and continue to learn more about our enormous and important industry because of great shows like these. There are many podcasts to choose from, but few, if any, are delivered by people as passionate and knowledgeable as Mark and Paige. You might find their journalistic objectivity wonders when it comes to politics, winky emoji. <laughs> <laughs> but that pales in comparison to the vast knowledge and on-point perspective of our industry that listeners benefit from. Mark's take on energy mix evolution is insightful and, in my mind, spot on. A true highlight of any oil and gas professionals week. Thoroughly recommended. Stuart Wilson. Thank you, Stuart Wilson. What a great review. And we're trying to not go down the political route, especially since now we have a geopolitical podcast that can pick up all that slack. But politics are an important part of this industry. And when they're making an impact in the industry, we're going to talk about it. Yep. That's just how it is. So let's get into the news stories. All right. We're going to start off with some horrible stuff. Two dead, over 80 kidnapped after protesters raid Colombian oil field. Yeah, so this fighting back and forth between the state of Colombia and several guerrilla groups and indigenous tribes going on for a very, very, very long time. So basically, 80 police officers and a bunch of oilfield workers got taken hostage. Now listen to me. Police officers got taken hostage. What happens is the police officers were unarmed. They were sent out to site to, type to maintain control, and clashes between the local communities and the police started. A group broke into the oil field owned by Sinochem, which is a Chinese company. They set installations on fire. And what they're protesting is that the government said that if they worked and allowed them to build these oil and gas extraction facilities, they would do a lot of road repair. And it's been over a year, and the government has done zero road repair. So the locals are upset. The rebel groups that aren't a fan of the government use the local groups to be upset to incite violence. A bunch of people are taken hostage. Unfortunately, a couple of people lost their lives, two lost their lives. But still, as of March 9th, it's still they haven't gotten control of everything. It does bother me a little bit that their president, when he's talking about what's going on, does everything on Twitter instead of a national broadcast to his citizens. And so both the president, Gustavo Petra, and then their defense minister, Yvonne Vasquez, saying they're going to stop the violence no matter what it takes. They also asked Red Cross to step in and help with medical attendant for the hostages. And then this is you know a typical clash between government groups and local rebel groups and local communities when companies and governments make promises they don't keep. So the Columbia Oil and Gas Association says that they condemn this act of violence, and then they're working on, on everything they can to get the kidnapped victims back in safety. So this is still going on. We're going to keep an eye on this. This is, like Paige said, this is a horrible happening. All right. Ohio law labels natural gas green, but what does that mean? What's, what does that mean? Is there a lot of environmentalists right now that are pissed? <laughs> <laughs> I love this. So Governor Mike DeWine signed House Bill HB 507 into the law, 
which then classifies natural gas as green. A lot of people would push back on that, but we all know that by switching from coal to natural gas, you reduce emissions by 60%. It's one of the cleanest burning fuels out there. It's cleaner than a lot of the renewables that are out there. It's cleaner in a lot of ways in some of the you know biofuels. It's a lot cleaner, actually, than a lot of the biofuels. uses a lot less water. And I just think this is awesome. Now, does this have a lot of legal might? No. But does this set a precedent? Yes. With one of the states that has huge oil and gas production, there's no funding or regulations behind this yet. But natural gas is a huge component of Ohio's energy mix. It's a huge component of the U.S.'s energy mix. And as the world is still in an energy shortage, you can see more and more natural gas in the form of LNG be an important component of the world's energy mix. So by labeling this green energy, they're setting a precedent that natural gas is as clean as other fuels and should be considered as such. Now, a spokesperson for T, a big shout out to them. They actually sponsor our geopolitical podcast, the Empowering Alliance. They said, quote, the label itself is an awareness thing, but it's a first step toward letting people realize that natural gas has been around and it needs to stay around and it helps reduce emissions. So I agree 100%. I'm hoping the state of Texas follows this along with the other oil producing states. You're going to have people push back on this, but I'm sorry. When you look at the requirements for green energy that have less impact on the environment, natural gas is a perfect fit to be called green. Now, let's see where this thing goes. You're having some pushback on this. There's going to be some issues with the IRA bill on funding. Now, the cool thing is if legally you can classify natural gas as green, it's going to give it access for things like pipeline, natural gas extraction, compressor stations for funding that's actually in the IRA bill. So we're going to keep a really close eye on this. This is really, if you look at what's going on, this is really states pushing back saying that they're going to have that they want energy independence for their people, regardless of what the federal government's doing. You know, you're seeing the same thing go down the same road in Pennsylvania. We need to see more of this. It's the same thing's going on in West Virginia. So it's just, we need to see more states follow suit in this. And I'm actually very, very proud of Ohio for labeling natural gas as green energy. Yeah, Ohio has been in the news a lot lately. Poor state. So going on to the next article, Ohio among states that could add more ethanol to gasoline under EPA plan. God, I, I already knew. I already knew you'd be uh, like these, these renewable fuel standards needs to be thrown away. <laughs> so you know, people point at the oil and gas industry as far as having big lobby dollars and influencing politics. This this ethanol is a prime example of lobby dollars, lobbying dollars influence politics, not just in the states but the federal government. Basically. Ethanol is the same alcohol that you drink. For a very long time in Brazil, it was used as fuel. It still uses fuel. The thing about Brazil, though, is their process is easier and more efficient than ours because they're a tropical country. They can grow sugarcane. And so all they do is they extract the sugar from the sugarcane. They ferment it. They distill it. And they have ethanol. Pretty simple stuff, right? However, here in the U.S., we don't have tropical climates except for the Gulf Coast. The states that produce the ethanol are the states that produce corn, which you cannot ferment corn. What you have to do is you have to grow corn, and corn is a huge mineral and nutrient uh, plant. Like It needs a lot of nutrients to grow. It also needs a lot of water. You grow that corn, and instead of using it to feed people, they take it, they harvest it, they dry it out. Then they add more water to it to make the corn sprout, which is called malting. Then they dry it out again. That malting process converts the carbohydrates in the corn to sugar, which you can then ferment and then distill to make ethanol. Because of that extra step, 
ethanol as a fuel in the U.S. makes zero sense. It's also not good for car engines. And I know I'm going to get a little hate mail from the hot rodders out there and the tuners because it's great for high-end turbo cars because of the cooling effect of the ethanol. You also can't move it in pipelines because it absorbs water out the air and it causes corrosion. So basically, this is the biofuel industry with their lobby group asking to allow the sales of gasoline blended with up to 15% ethanol during the summer, which right now nobody allows. It's maxed out at 10%. The reason is that extra 5% causes particulates, which worsens the smog during the summer weather, the hot weather. And what's happening here is they're asking these these states are asking if they can up the amount of ethanol in gasoline. They love to point back at the oil and gas industry, saying the oil and gas industry is lobbying against this because they're just being big babies about it. No, what's happened right now is basically the federal government requires the oil and gas industry to buy a inferior competitive product and put it in gasoline. It's not good for your car, right? But by law, they have to blend it. And what's happening, you've heard me talk about this before, it's create this gray market for renewable fuel credits that doesn't help anybody. And then the hypocrisy on top of all of this <laughs> is the states that we're talking about here right now, so the Midwestern states that want this ethanol blend to raise, they're the ones that grow the corn, right? However, if you look at where all the E85 vehicles are in the country, they're not in the Midwest, they're on the East and West Coast, because a lot of people inherently think that if you buy an E85 vehicle, it's better for the environment, which it is not. And you can't hardly get E85 fuel in the East and West Coast. You can get it in the middle of the country, but in the middle of the country, they don't drive E85 vehicles. Yeah. So this this is hypocrisy on top of gray market money that only hurts taxpayer on top of huge political lobby dollars that aren't good for the people, aren't good for my car, aren't good for pipelines, aren't good for the environment. So, and of course, our current administration is supporting this. The EPA looks like they're going to push it through. Let's see what happens. But we do not need more ethanol in our gasoline. Matter of fact, what we need to do is stop subsidizing the ethanol, which is basically the subsidy is about a dollar per gallon. And if ethanol really is a good fuel, let it compete on the market like petroleum products for your car. That's not going to happen in our current administration. I'm not sure if it's going to ever happen ever, but we just we don't need more ethanol in our fuels. We need less ethanol in our fuels. Okay, so Russia plans to mothball sabotage Nord Stream pipelines. Okay, my first question before we even get into this is what does mothball mean? <laughs> Ooh, so long time ago before there was air conditioned, central heat and air conditioned houses, you had your winter clothes, which typically were made out of wool. Okay. Yes. There's certain caterpillars that like to eat wool and they turn into moss when they pupate, right? Mm -hmm. So what would happen is people's winter clothes, when they would storm in the non-environmentally controlled, the the moss would lay eggs, the caterpillars would hatch on your wool coat and eat it. Right. And then turn into a moth. Yeah. Right? And it would destroy your winter clothing. So they invented a moth repellent called a mothball. Well, I know that. That you would put in your clothes so you wouldn't have to write, right? Right. So when you mothball something like this, they're talking about the same process. You're putting it up for storage. Uh-huh. You're not doing anything with it. You're not throwing it away. You're just parking it on the side until to see if you need it later. So they talk about mothballing these these pipelines, the Nord Stream pipelines. Russia's basically saying, we're not going to fix it. We're not going to sell it. We're not going to dispose of it. We're just going to let it sit there and we're going to figure out what happens. So that's what it means when they say they're okay. mothballing this. Let me tell you what's really going on. Russia's realized that it's lost its ability and its chokehold on Europe for natural gas. A lot of it was shipped through Nord Stream pipeline, especially Nord Stream 1. Nord Stream 2 was not completed because the Germans said nope. Then we had the sabotage, the three explosions which damaged it. Still a bunch of finger pointing on who actually did that and why they did it. But there's really no reason 
financially today with the war in Ukraine, with the massive amount of infrastructure Germany's building to import LNG, with the U.S. and the Middle East rapidly growing its LNG export abilities, there's really no reason for Russia to repair this pipeline. So this is actually something smart coming out of Russia lately. If I was in Russia's shoes, I wouldn't repair this pipeline either. I'd let it sit and wait and see what happens geopolitically in the rest of the world. I also think that at some point they may actually put this on the market to be sold in a very bizarre long-term outlook. If the world keeps going the way I think it's going, and if Russia ends up having to settle with Ukraine and make peace, and if Putin gets pushed out because he no longer has the power and the people's people support, you're going to see the Russian economy tank and, and Russia have some very hard times. I would not be surprised, Paige, if somewhere in the next 20 years, somebody buys this pipeline and reverses it to start shipping energy, to start some natural gas to Russia. Huh. Right? Because even though they have tons and tons of conventional reservoirs, if the infrastructure breaks down and the finance models break down, the government breaks down, yeah. uh, they're going to be like what's going on in Mexico where they mm-hmm. have tons of hydrocarbon under their feet, but they can't get it out of the ground. And so they have to buy it from somewhere else. So nobody make any investment decision based on what I just said about Russia eventually selling Nord Stream. But basically what they're saying to do is they're just going to park it. They're going to wait and see what happens. The sabotage is still being investigated. There's you know fingers pointing everywhere. I am still really curious why Sweden's investigation, and they were the first ones on the scene, so they got the most accurate information, why they haven't released the results of that investigation. Do you think it because it might start a world war? I don't think it might start. Well, maybe. I think, personally, I think that Russia actually sab- sabotaged the pipeline itself for a variety of reasons. I think Sweden knows that, and Sweden's worried about the future and Sweden's ability to remain neutral. Sweden's always remained neutral during right. major conflicts. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, that makes right. sense. And so if they basically tell on Russia and they have the proof, if there's a major conflict, they may be putting Russia's crosshairs. That's what I think is going on. It's not like the Sweden's Secret Service calls me and fills me on, on the you know, yeah, I know. details. But I think that's what's going on. But basically, Russia's saying, we're just going to let Nord Stream sit there. Okay. All right. So UAE has internal debate about leaving OPEC. Now, this is a two-parter. So, United Arab Emirates, this has been going on, or these type of discussions about them leaving OPEC has been going on for at least 10 years, if not even longer. Basically, there's a rift between Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and it's all around the war in Yemen. The UAE is hoping to kind of keep its influence in the country to secure their shipping routes for their own uses. Saudi Arabia has been working with the Houth rebels without working with the UAE in hopes of ending the war. The UAE has signed a security agreement with the Saudi-backed Yemen government to allow the UAE to intervene if there's an immediate threat. And then they're also looking to build a military base at the strait. So basically two different cultures, two different tribal cultures that aren't agreeing on something that are both major contributors to OPEC. I think UAE produces about three and a half million barrels of crude per day. I think they're either second or third biggest producer inside of OPEC. I've been talking about OPEC falling apart for years. I still believe that the cartel will fall apart. And if this happens right here, if UAE walks away from OPEC, you're going to see other OPEC nations also walk away. And then what happens at that point, everybody's an independent. Everybody's trying to make their own money. You have the OPEC loses its control on pricing, the global pricing, you'll actually see the market start being flooded with hydrocarbons because all these countries, literally the only revenue source is hydrocarbons, but they all have limited production capacity. So if OPEC 
if the cartel falls apart and if UAE walks away, and that's one of the reasons it falls apart, you'll actually see a low price environment happen for a couple of years, which is actually not good for anybody. However, we would be okay, but Russia would start starving to death mm. right, if the market gets flooded. So a lot of risk here globally, but I think they're going to walk away. Then there'll be no pick. No pack. Yeah, no, watch. We should make those shirts now. Somebody's going to beat us to it. I'm sure somebody's already come up with that. I'm not that original. So here's the second part. Oil Post's weekly gain as UAE denies OPEC exit plans. Yeah. So this is always fascinating to me. No matter what's going on politically in the world, in the oil and gas space, the market has more leverage than anything else, more leverage than politicians, than countries, than consumption, than demand. So this is a perfect example of how UAE saying they're not leaving OPEC, but nobody really, or a lot of people don't believe them, then drove the price of crude up. It actually had no effect on the supply of crude whatsoever. Right. <laughs> it was the perception that the UAE is saying they're not going to leave OPEC, but a lot of people, a lot of analysts think that they are. So it's just a perfect example of how the perception of something happened in the geopolitical oil and gas market can drive prices one way or another. I think Brent rose like over a dollar when that announcement was made and WTI uh-huh. went up a dollar and a half. So, you know, just somebody saying that they're not going to leave OPEC and people thinking they are move the needle a, a decent amount. It's amazing how that works. It really is. And that's one of those things. So when I do my predictions every year and I talk about pricing, it's the hardest thing to get your head around. Because figuring out the actual numbers of supply and demand is really not that hard. There is an issue with China and Russia and the Middle East not telling the truth. And so I have this formula, this fudge factor formula I used to help mitigate that. But it's the perceptions of the market that's impossible to predict. And if you look at any oil and gas analysts out there, even the best ones out there, they maybe get it right 70% of the time just because the market fluctuations based on perception. And that's one of those things you just can't predict. Mm, mm, okay. Fifth of oil gas workers feel like outsiders at work. So I went through this article, and it was very interesting. The company that did this research is a company called OC Tanner, and they collected and analyzed a whole bunch of data from over 3,600 employees, oil and gas industry leaders, HR people, business executives, and 186 field people from 20 countries around the world. And their findings were that 15% of oil and gas workers felt like outsiders at work in 2022. So, and what they're basically saying is this 15% of the oil and gas workforce feels like they're not part of the company, not part of the culture. There's not good communication, not good feedback. There's no trust, camaraderie, unity, you know, all that sort of stuff. I have a really hard problem with that. When I think of any industry that is like a brotherhood, that is like a family, yeah, it's this one. Absolutely. And the fact that historically... Who's ever leading the deep water business you at ExxonMobil right now, I guarantee you, started out in the field somewhere in the past, has still has steel-toed boots in his closet, still has a hard hat. And you have that shared experience of starting at the well site and working your way up through management and dealing with every horrible, <laughs> ter- horrific problem that you can imagine. I mean, our industry has to deal with storms and wars and, you know, sabotage and well blowouts and all that. And that pulls people together. So after going through this article, I got did a little bit of research on OC Tanner. And guess what OC Tanner does? What? They're a global leader in software and services that improve workplace culture. Oh, so there's money. Employee experiences. 
So what I think they did, and I don't have access to the raw data, and if somebody is listening from OC Tanner and actually can give me not the abstract but the raw data, I think they did one of two things. I think they fudged this, uh-huh. which would not be right, which would be wrong. And so I'm not 100% sure they did that. Or I think they cherry-picked the data to get the results they want. And I'd be willing to bet that if I dug into their data and look at what their control was and look at what their sample size was, because this is a strong point at Point. I do this sort of stuff at Motopoint all the time. I bet there's a huge bias in this research because their goal is to sell their software and services to improve workplace culture. So, of course, they're going to say 15% of the research they did in oil and gas says that that workplace culture sucks. I don't believe it. Well, and also something to take into consideration is the fact that we were all separated for, you know, about two years. So maybe that's people coming back into the the industry. So let's talk through that. If we were all separate because of the pandemic, then that feeling of being separate applies to all of us equally. Yeah. So it would have no effect on this one-fifth of oil and gas workers feel like outsiders because that would be the norm. That same feeling would also be in big box retail and legal and everything else because, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So once again, I call bullshit. Okay. Well, I need to, I would like to know which countries they were, you know? There are 20 countries around the world. Out of how many? 208. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I'd like to know what their sample size is. There's a process of doing this. I don't believe this is legit. If any industry vertical that has a sense of family and togetherness, I would put oil and gas against anybody. The only vertical that's would be close, I would say, is the military. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's fair. Okay. Shell completes withdrawal from Salon Petroleum Development interests in Russia. So let me tell you what Shell's walking away from. They're not walking away from a 3% ownership or a 5% ownership or even a 10% ownership. They own 50% of this project. Oh, dang. They own half of it, right? And you know what? Shell's doing the right thing. They're saying, you know what? We don't like what you're doing, Russia. We're not going to help your economy. And so we're going to pull out of this project. See ya. So hats off to Shell. This is the right thing to do. It's going to cost Shell a lot of money. It's going to hurt uh, shareholder obviously. value in a time where Shell is not at the top of the list with its competitors. But it is the right thing to do. So I am very proud of you, Shell, for doing this. Bravo. Okay. RRC commissioners vote to challenge val- val- valid- validity. Thank you. of biden's administration's air emissions actions hey federal government when are you gonna learn to not mess with texas (laughs) we don't put up with this we literally don't so uh this is the usual deal our railroad commission and it's a long story audience why the oil and gas regulatory body in texas is a railroad commission it makes sense when you hear the story google it it'll make sense to you anyway At the last Railroad Commission meeting, unanimously voted to refer two actions by the Environmental Protection Agency to the Texas Attorney General to challenge it. So we're going to take the federal government to court. Looking at our past track record, we've won 100% of these, which the last two times we did this, the federal government backed down. They even go to court, so I suspect they're going to back down here. This is once again the EPA trying to use the Clean Air Act to impose ozone regulations on basically the Permian, but also emissions on pumps using natural gas pipelines. The emissions and the ozone in the Permian is natural. Doesn't mean it's healthy for you, the low-level ozone. Doesn't mean it's unhealthy for you either, but it's natural. It's caused by sunlight hitting oxygen molecules. 
The fact that the Permian is basically a big bowl means that unless the weather's right, that ozone sits lower to the ground for a large part of the year. The federal government wanted to say that it was oil and gas operations and that they would have to reduce operations to help with ozone. And Texas says, nope, it's not going to happen. And it's pseudoscience that you're using. And you're trying to hurt the oil and gas industry. And we're not going to let you do it. So, you know, like I said, they've tried this before. The EPA under Biden's tried this before. It got basically, they ran away with their tail between their legs. This is another attempt by our federal government to use other regulations to hurt the oil and gas industry in Texas. And I'm very proud of my state for not letting it happen. They're going to push back. So Texas- will Oh, they not, always push back. We, we always push back, right? Yeah. So Texas is not going to let this happen. Texas actually has a very long- and I'm proud of the history of protecting its citizens and its natural resources and environments from the federal government who's really acting on other interests other than the environmental interests. So, you know, once again, hats off to Texas and the Railroad Commission. I don't always agree with the what the Railroad Commission does. Yeah. But in this case, I love the fact they handed it over to the Attorney General. It was the right thing to do. And our Attorney General is, is a pit bull. Yeah. Like, he, like, he does. He's fresh out. Yeah. So, you know, I don't want to see any more of this. I mean, why waste the federal government's time and money? They could spend that time money on something that's more useful to the country than this. But as long as they do it and it doesn't make sense, Texas will push back, which is the right thing to do. All right. Next article, Mozambique dependent on Total Energy's LNG project to pay debts. Yeah. So basically, the government of Mozambique owes a lot of money for a lot of different things. And the interest on that debt is actually going up. They had an issue when they had to shut down the LNG project because of the guerrilla attacks, which then changed Mozambique's credit rating, which means the interest on these projects are actually higher than they were. And so Mozambique's really facing these debt payments that are getting harder and harder for them to meet. And they're dependent on the revenue from this LNG project to pay off that debt. So the debt is 900 million euros and it, the interest rate went from 5% to 9%, Ooh. which is almost double. And so it's just like critical for this LNG project to come online so that the money can be used to pay off this debt. Because what you don't want to have happen is has the government of Mozambique go bankrupt. Right. Now, the problem is the guerrilla activity that's going on there, the politics that are going on. It's really interesting. So Rwanda, which is a neighbor, actually volunteered some troops to help not so much help the Mozambique government round up and suppress the guerrillas, but just to protect the LNG project, which actually, if I was a neighbor of Mozambique, that's probably what I think would, I would do as well. Less as neighbors that would benefit from this project, use our military to protect the project itself. Let Mozambique's government figure out how to negotiate with the guerrillas so they can stop the skirmishes going back and forth with his insurgents. The problem with the insurgents is they're small groups. It's guerrilla warfare. The Mozambique military is nowhere near equipped to have a guerrilla war, much less trying to track these guys down in the jungle. The Mozambique's government bonds fell 8% in value. And that's the lowest it's been trading on the S&P for six years. And then the International Monetary Fund looks like they're going to make a loan, 456 million euros to help Mozambique stretch this out. So what we really need is for this work to resume. One of the suppliers out there at, let's see, Alexander Pultai, CEO at SAPOM SPA, he has a multi-million dollar contract for part of this Mozambique LNG projects. 
and that he's starting to see work return starting right around July of this year. So let's hope that happens, that we don't want the government to go bankrupt. We need security there. We need this LNG project to come online to help the world with this energy shortage. And then quite frankly, if they can get this thing up and running, it's prosperity for the people there. Yeah, absolutely. Which, which then should help the government work with the insurgents and the small guerrillas and figure out what they need to make them happy and have peace in that area. And have maybe have long-lasting peace because the prosperity this LNG project will bring to the country. So let's see what happens with this. We've got to keep an eye on this. This is another geopolitical hotspot that could turn into something ugly, but let's hope it doesn't. Right. Up next, rig famine. Offshore rig owners lack active rigs to bid for contracts. Who talked about a space company selling its spar rigs? I know. Because the market needs rigs. It seemed like somebody talked about that recently. I can't remember who said that. Um, You. Me? Yeah. So short story, there's not enough rigs in the world. There's not enough energy in the world. We need more rigs to get more energy, specifically hydrocarbons. And there's not enough. You can't build a semi-submersible or a jack-up in a week or two. All the major shipyards in the world are frantically building rigs because there's so much money to be made. So How long does it take to fabricate one? Depends on what it is. You know, if it's a large deep water drill ship, that's four years, three or four years, mm. right? If it's a smaller jack-up, especially if it's one they've built before, they can kick one of those things out in eight months. Okay. Know, they actually build, a, speaking of our home state of Louisiana, the guy, I can't remember the name of the shipyards, is the Bollinger Shipyards in South Louisiana. They actually build a lot of rigs for the world. So, But there's a rig shortage, and there's no quick way to fix it. If you happen to have a jack-up or a semi-submersible rig in your backyard, now's the time to sell it, just like a no SpaceX kidding. thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so Oxy's 1.5 leases acreage for Plan CCS Hub in Southeast Texas. We, we were We were in there... Uh, we were right smack in the middle of their Sarah Week control room, mm-hmm. right? Um, we got to actually hear from actually one of your buddies' work. Yeah, there, shout out to Josh Barvin. Who was a great guy, by the way. Um, he's very tall. He's extremely <laughs> tall. And he actually works for the 1.5, which is the subsidiary of Occidental that's doing this carbon capture and sequestration stuff. Beautiful. Love what they're doing with this. I actually love the fact that the entire industry thought uh, Vicki Holland was crazy when she brought this on. And I know she can't do this because she's the CEO of a public company, but man, if I was her girl power, I would be talking, I'd be talking crap back to all my detractors right now. <laughs> but anyway, love what they're doing with this partner with enterprise product partners, which is a pipeline company. They're grabbing this CO2 in various different ways, including direct air capture. They're going to store it. Then they're going to sell it and use it. It's just a wonderful thing for the world. So hats off for Oxy for doing this. I love the fact that they're doing this in all states, Texas, you know, because we have such, Where a, else? such Where? a good business environment. Well, after, our, you know, the last couple of things that we talked about, the federal government, Oxy at least knows that if something bad happens to the federal government, the state has their back. Well, right. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly why I would do it. Plus, yeah. there's plenty of room in Texas. Plenty of room. So hats off to 1.5. Uh, wish you continued success. At some point, we're going to end up doing a deeper dive on carbon capture and storage. We've had a lot of people actually ask us for a podcast on that. I knew that was coming. Yeah, give us time, people. We've got to take a breather. We've got so many new shows coming. Let us get caught up, and then maybe we'll look at doing a CCS podcast. And if we do, one of the first people I am actually going to reach out to, first companies is 1.5 because they're doing it There right. you go. There you go. All right, last article. Biden hears Oval Office plea for Alaska oil project and lobbying frenzy. Yeah, so we've talked about this before. Basically, there's a project in Alaska that 
can drill and produce about 200,000 barrels a day of crude, which is one and a half or two percent of what U.S. needs, U.S. production. And they need to be able to transport that crude with a pipeline. So ConocoPhillips got the approval on the pipeline, although the federal government scaled it down. But then when you actually get to the drilling pad, they needed three pads to make this project economical. And it looks like the government is going to only approve two, which then would make the project economically unviable. Right. But it allows the federal government to say, we didn't kill the project. They chose to kill it themselves. But really, they're killing the project. And what's happening here is you have, I mean, it's so not only do you have the Alaskan government, the Congress in Alaska, you're having local citizens, you're having indigenous tribes all basically show up at the White House at the same time and said, look, we need this project to go through and include the labor unions, right? We need this project to go through because it's high paying jobs. Also, the world's in an energy shortage. Also, the U.S. produces the cleanest hydrocarbon molecule in the world. And if you don't let us produce these hydrocarbons from Alaska, some other country will produce them, which really doesn't care about the environment. So it's a win-win for everybody. And it's a lose for everybody if you don't approve this. Even some of the environmental advocates in Alaska that have an issue with the oil and gas industry saying, look, this is such a small, clean buttoned up operation. Let them do this because we don't want them drilling in the Arctic. We don't want Russia or China drilling in the Arctic for the world's oil supply. Yeah. Let the U.S. companies that produce are, oil from Alaska because it's safer for the environment. Yeah, because so, they're a lot more responsible. A lot more responsible. So I don't know how they would kill this project without a lot of pushback from the public. However, you never know what's going to happen. So let's keep our fingers crossed they approve this project. They need to do this. The world needs this. We're still in an energy shortage. The state of Alaska could use the jobs and the prosperity. We know what we're doing. We know how to be environmentally responsible. Don't, please, federal government, don't do something stupid and change the number of pads just so you can't be, have fingers pointed at you saying you didn't kill this project because you would have killed this project if you do it. So we'll see that, hey, how about this? Two dozen congressional Democrats told Biden in a letter on Friday that they should go ahead and do this project. So when you have that many people on the Democratic side saying, pull the trigger, let this project go through, let this project go through, please. Yes. And that's it. That's it. Mm-hmm. What about if somebody wants to advertise with us? Okay. Well, you know, Rudolph says I pitch stuff too much. Well, we have to make money somehow. So, Rudolph, this one's for you. For the first time ever, <laughs> you can buy an ad spot on any of our show or any of our podcasts for very little money. Go to OGGN.com, hit the pricing page, you can see what I'm talking about. We have several options, everything from just a few dollars up to enterprise-level access to our enormous global audiences, which, by the way, everybody that listens to this show, pat yourself on the back right now. I know I've mentioned this before, but I want to be very clear here. Oil and Gas This Week has listeners in 208 countries as of November of last year. There are 208 countries on the planet. We have listeners in every single country there is for this show. So all of our longtime listeners, thank you for helping the show grow. All of our new listeners, thank you for joining and being a part of the party here. I am amazed that our little Oil and Gas podcast literally owns the world. It's well, amazing. I wouldn't go own, but it dominates. <laughs> Either way, thank you listeners for helping us get there. We literally are in every single country on the planet, which is why you should advertise with us. Just ask Rudolph. 
Okay. Weekly recount. Yeah, we're going to go to the red count now. That's enough of that mess. Anyway, all right. So the United States is at 749, down four. Canada's at up two at 246. Internationally, we're up 14 at 915. Love those numbers. Just like I love LinkedIn. You know the deal. Just go to LinkedIn. He really does love LinkedIn. I do love LinkedIn. And then while you're out there on the interwebs, if you have a question for First Friday Q&A, either go to OGGN.com or AllInGasThisWeek.com is a place to just submit your question. If we use your question on there, you'll get a big shout out. Also, if you want my monthly oil and gas events newsletter, somebody just asked me about this today. There's a link in the show notes. We take all the oil and gas events that are going on, plus some private invitation only stuff, usually free tickets, discount coupons, whatever. And we stick in your inbox once a month. We never spam you. And if you want myself or any of our experts to come speak at your event, let us know. We're actually going to be in Colorado in a week speaking and doing a live podcast. Yeah, I think that's on a Sunday. Or two weeks. No, anyway. no, it's like a week. Well, by the time you hear it, it'll be the upcoming weekend. Yeah. Anyway, so we love that sort of stuff. So if we can help your company, just reach out and let us know. It's time to go eat, isn't it? Yep. My stomach's <laughs> growling again. All right. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.